The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Frank Latuka, Olin and Angela, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. Joining you from uh, the vacation zone. We're here. We're in the sun. I, I might get a cocktail. You know, you never know. You never know. There's a lot going on here. We got a lot to talk about today, though, because whether or not I am having a good time decompressing from this insane season. The madness rolls on. Indeed, we will take a deep dive through the beginning of the Georgia runoff races that will determine the balance of power in the Senate. And we see some very, very, very clear strategy emerging in both of those races. And I think some very interesting definition on how John Ossoff wants to run and how Raphael Warnock wants to run as a Democrat. And specifically one that's a little more progressive than the other. All that will be covered, including Kelly Leffler and David Perdue's response, which is pretty similar. We also have a look into the 2024 presidential race. I know literally it's not done yet technically for 2020, but we are already seeing some of the machinations that Donald Trump may or may not decide to just announce that he is running in 2024 as part of his concession speech. We will take a look at how realistic that is, when it might happen, and what happens to everybody that became national figures during the Trump administration, namely Mike Pence, namely Nikki Haley, namely Mike Pompeo, who now would have to contend with their old boss. And finally, we will have an interview with J.D. Durkin from his spot on the Hill. Uh, it is it is a great conversation about uh, not only his coverage of some of the uh, Stop the Steal protests, the Biden celebration protests in Philadelphia, but also some of the early scuttlebutt, including the fact that we now have a new media fixation in a post-Trump D.C. Her name is Marjorie Green. She's doing CrossFit in her hotel room, and nobody can stop talking about her. And, and here's a little tease, all right? I always ask J.D. Durkin, because I'm convinced, he has in no way told me that he has an inside track on this. I can just smell it on him. I can smell it on him that he, he's from New York, he's plugged into the Justice Democrats, I'm like, he knows, he knows whether or not AOC is going to primary Chuck Schumer. He knows, or at least when anybody can know, he will know. So I press him on it again, and we get scuttlebutt that I have yet to see mentioned anywhere. Indeed, a way that AOC gets to the Senate without primarying Chuck Schumer. AOC ascension without the infighting? How could it happen? J.D. Durkin prophesizes. But first... I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because it's time we had a senator who put Georgians first, like me. That is the voice of Raphael Warnock. He is a reverend 
at the uh, uh, church that Martin Luther King and his family, Martin Luther King Jr. and his uh, uh, family made famous. He is running as a Democrat in Georgia during the uh, uh, massive election that we just had, the special election that we just had in Georgia on election day, wherein there were, uh, I think, 20 people on the ballot, including two Republicans that, that drew significant uh, percentages. Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler. Raphael Warnock was the, 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 the winner there, although not with the kind of numbers that you would need to win outright because you need over 50% uh, unless it goes, or it, otherwise it goes to a runoff. But Raphael Warnock is, I think, a fairly impressive candidate. He is somebody that is running a, a more progressive campaign, but is palatable to a Southern voter. And if you can, if you can run uh, a, a, you know, big government change will make your life better kind of campaign in the South, I, I think that you're doing something well. He's got a great uh, uh, demeanor. He comes across friendly. He reads friendly. He reads trustworthy. And I will say this specifically. Uh, you see what I think a lot of progressives really, 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 really need to, to put like front and center in the way that they are professing the things that they want to do. And that is don't fall into the trap of talking about this from a top-down leadership or budget perspective. And you can't speak in generalities of like, this will do better for blank. You've got to get nitty gritty on the problems that people are facing and the solutions they could get. Because once you sell people on that, once you sell people on here, uh, does this problem seem relatable to you? Here's the solution that could happen. Then the price tag on it becomes less of an issue. And all progressive causes have a big price tag. But here's Warnock specifically talking about Medicaid. Some things don't make any sense. 38 states across America have expanded Medicaid, but not Georgia, even though it would cost us next to nothing and provide health care coverage to half a million Georgians, including those with pre-existing conditions. That means as rural hospitals across Georgia are closing, we're paying to keep hospitals open in other states. I'm Raphael Warnock, and in the Senate, I will fight to expand affordable health care. That's why I approve this message. Furthermore, here is Warnock discussing his opponent without discussing his opponent. This is a great little tactic here, a way that you can kind of like subtweet the person that you are running against. You don't have to say Kelly Leffler is the richest member of Congress. Here's just an ad that talks about how relatable Raphael Warnock is. Raphael Warnock grew up in a house full of brothers and sisters. His parents taught him the value of hard work, like me. Like me, he was first in his family to graduate from college and went on to earn a PhD. He thinks insurance companies should not be allowed to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, like me. Like me, Reverend Warnock knows that both parties in Washington could use some moral leadership. And by the way, Kelly Leffler is very rich. Very, 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 very rich. He is the richest member of Congress. Kelly Leveler is so rich that she owns a WNBA team that she feuded with when her own WNB, uh, WNBA team got mad at her. Like, do you know how rich you need to be to boo your own sports team? That is wealth. Now, Warnock... In these previous two uh, commercials, I, I think it's done really, really well. There is, I think, a, a, a issue, a mistake he's made that he is now already paying for. As soon as you start to anticipate your opponent's moves instead of telling your own story, I think you are kind of pedaling backwards. For whatever strategy means in the margins, 
I just think that it is it is never a great thing for you to try to be too clever and know exactly what your opponents are going to say and, and try to cut their knees out from under them. So Warnock knows he's going to get portrayed as a radical. And he makes an ad to try and soften the blow there. Here that is. Raphael Warnock eats pizza with a fork and knife. Raphael Warnock once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Kelly Leffler doesn't want to talk about why she's for getting rid of health care in the middle of a pandemic. So she's going to try and scare you with lies about me. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because I'm staying focused on what Washington could do for you. And by the way, I love puppies. By the way, it didn't work. Meet Raphael Warnock. He wants you to know he eats pizza with a fork and a knife. He once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. But Georgians don't care about that. Georgians care that Raphael Warnock was a proud defender of anti-American, anti-Semitic pastor Jeremiah Wright who suggested America deserved the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Not God bless America, God damn America! We celebrate uh, Reverend Wright. Warnock said law enforcement officers are gangsters and thugs and a danger to children. He's anti-Israel, anti-Second Amendment, sympathizes with Marxists and socialists, and wants to make your neighborhoods less safe. Don't let him fool you with pizza and puppies. Raphael Warnock is too extreme for Georgia. The playbooks on the GOP side of both of these elections is remarkably similar. This is about the balance of power in this country. Do you want to hand over the country to the radical left? These cuddly, soft-focused Democrats, here's what they really think. Raphael Warnock's talking puppies because he doesn't want you to hear this. Not God bless America, God America. Warnock defended Jeremiah Wright's hatred, then gave him an award for truth-telling. We celebrate Reverend Wright. Warnock celebrated anti-American hatred. God America. Jeremiah Wright is doing what he should do. He is a preacher and a Sir. prophet. Raphael Warnock, a radical's radical. And there is a sign that some of this is catching. Warnock had to navigate one of these charges in the spotlight of CNN this weekend. Jake Tapper asked him about a 1995 speech by Fidel Castro at a church where Warnock at the time was a youth pastor. Let, let me let me ask you about one of those attacks, because um, Senator Leffler keeps mentioning on the campaign trail an incident from 1995 when you were a youth pastor at a New York church, which hosted a speech by Fidel Castro. Now, you've said you had nothing to do with that invitation. But just to clarify for our viewers, did you attend the speech? And do you understand why there are so many people who view Castro as a, as a murderous tyrant and, and not someone to be celebrated? I'll tell you what I understand. I understand why uh, Kelly Leffler is trying to change the subject. I was a youth pastor. I had nothing to do with that program. Uh, I did not make any decisions uh, regarding the program. I've never met uh, the Cuban dictator. And so uh, I'm not connected to him I'll tell you whose names are on the ballot. Raphael Warnock and Kelly Leffler. This race uh, is not about anybody else. And so while she tries to tie me to these personalities that I don't know and seeks the endorsement of a fifth century warmonger named Attila the Hun, I'll be focused on health care in Georgia. But do you understand why so many people view any celebration of Fidel Castro uh, as celebrating something ugly and, and tyrannical. You, you mentioned that, I think you just called him a tyrant. I mean, he's, he, he, he was a murderous thug. And uh, I think that, I get that this is a distraction, but do you understand why people would be appalled by anyone celebrating Fidel Castro? Well, a absolutely, and, and I never have. Uh, what I am putting forward in this race is American values. Listen, in, in no place other than America is my story even possible. Uh, I'm proud of my now, country. Let's and what pull out a little bit on this America. one. Castro is not a campaign killer unless you're in Florida, but progressives, and, and this kind of goes back to Bernie Sanders with the uh, Castro comments during the, the primary. I, I really think this has now happened a couple times. Castro has become this sticking point for progressives that, and, and maybe it's just because he's the most famous collectivist. It's like 
Hugo Chavez and Castro. But even then, like, because of Little Havana, because of Miami, Castro just means more in America. And progressive candidates got to figure out a confident line on this. Like, either they got to, you know, understand up front, like, look, what I'm trying to do and what is best for America has nothing to do with Castro. Uh, uh, you know, obviously we are not going to fall into some dictatorial blah, 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 blah. Or you just got to acknowledge the controversial nature of Castro. Fully embrace the issue and just understand you're never going to win Little Havana. But these mushy middle answers on, well, this is a distraction. It, it just seems like you're hiding something and, and you're not getting either you're not squashing the issue and you're not taking advantage of whatever element of like, no systemic change sometimes looks weird. And maybe we've all been lied to about the history of Fidel Castro in this country. Like just go for it. Just understand that you got to own it, especially if you are a candidate of moral clarity, then doing any kind of bet hedging to me is antithetical to the the image that you are putting out there. But speaking of a, uh, a totally smooth candidacy for which is only seeking to not offend people, let's flip to the other race in Georgia. John Ossoff. He is a nice, white, young man with a nice, white manner. He pays attention to the issues that nice, white voters in Georgia care about, like covid here is his attack ad on his opponent, David Perdue, comparing him to, at this point, very likely statewide loser, Donald Trump on COVID. Uh, to give you a sense on the visuals here, all of these sound bites are happening while the ticking of American deaths from COVID happens on a chart. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message. In terms of cases, it's very, very few. Very, very few people have been exposed to it. The risk to the American people remains very low. The risk of this virus still remains low. We've had flus before. We've had ordinary flu seasons with more deaths. Those numbers are nowhere near what was projected. The numbers projected were supposed to be much worse. It's going very well. It's going very well. David Perdue ignored the medical experts, downplayed the crisis, and left us unprepared. Here is John Ossoff again. This time, uh, it's about Joe giving Joe Biden a chance instead of sentencing him to gridlock like Obama had, except for those times that Obama didn't have gridlock. Look, the only way to beat this virus is to give our new president the chance to succeed. I'll work with Joe Biden to empower the medical experts, to rush economic relief for families and small businesses, and invest in infrastructure to jumpstart our economy. But David Perdue says he'll do everything in his power to make sure Joe Biden fails, just like he tried to do with President Obama. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message because lives are on the line. Jobs and businesses are on the line. So let's get this done. Not so fast, says David Perdue. This isn't about giving statewide winner Joe Biden a chance. This is about installing the radical left, including the arch-villain, Chuck Schumer. Now we take Georgia, then we change America. You heard him. Chuck Schumer is trying to use Georgia to take the Senate majority and radically change America. The Schumer-Pelosi-Ossoff change? Defund police. Voting rights for illegal immigrants. Washington, D.C. as the 51st state. Then we change America. Change is coming to America. Believe them. Vote Purdue to stop them. I'm David Purdue, and I approve this message. Now listen to the subtleties here. They, the Democrats, want to use Georgia. This is a demonization of the nationalization of the race. This is not about what you want, dear Georgia voter. No, no, no. This is about the national cabal of Democratic radical left power. They are forcing you into a situation where you're going to give up the, the axis of any kind of balance of power in America. They want to change America and only you can stop them. Of course, this is also nationalizing the race. You are putting the fate of the nation in your hands, Georgia. But it's in a way that allows conservative voters to bury their feelings for Purdue, Trump, and probably even COVID. Because according to this framing, after all these names are gone, 
these changes will still be in existence. As of right now, there is nothing here that is particularly surprising. And I, I, uh, if anything, I sense a little hesitation by the Democrats in this race to really, really, really embrace the like, guys, this is our chance. Do you want Mitch McConnell out of office? Then you got to run on this, which is kind of interesting. Like, considering how much money the Pod Save a Blanket Boys raised to get Mitch out of power, you would think that that's the natural thing to do. We need to silence Mitch McConnell. He is the closest thing to Trump that unites progressives, that unites moderates. But I guess in Georgia, Mitch McConnell is not quite the villain that he is in New York and L.A. And while that might raise a lot of money that will be pumped into this race by the time that the January vote runs uh, uh, comes around, it's certainly not the issue that they're pumping out now. Right now, this is pretty textbook. Both Democratic candidates are running to the center. The Republican candidates are trying to prevent that. That is our battle right now. Can Warnock and Ossoff be as milk toast as possible. They want Warnock to be about, again, cutting pizza with a fork and a knife. Ossoff wants to run against Trump. They both have apparently said that they want to be Joe Biden Democrats. And the Republicans are going to do everything in their power to prevent that because in a low turnout election, which is what Georgia runoffs tend to be, then the natural advantage of the Republicans will eventually come through. And maybe some of those suburban voters that voted for Joe Biden, but didn't vote for John Ossoff, but didn't vote for Raphael Warnock, will now cast their votes for Purdue and Leffler. Much more on this as we roll on to the Senate came down to Georgia. Headline from Politico. Four more years, Trump freezes 2024 presidential field. Kevin Kramer called Donald Trump last week to convey his support for the president's effort to contest the election results when Trump dropped a casual aside that snapped the North Dakota senator to attention. If this doesn't work out, I'll just run again in four years, Trump said. Kramer could only chuckle at the president musing about the next presidential race while still in office. But to the lineup of Republican hopefuls with their eyes on becoming the GOP's post-Trump standard bearer, the president's remark was no laughing matter. You have heard from me for a while now that this was the likely case. I mean, remember, Donald Trump would be running for a second term in office at the same age that Joe Biden just won it. So if we are now throwing out the idea that age really matters in these races, then the idea that Donald Trump could run again is not crazy, specifically if things don't go particularly well for Joe Biden in the, the intervening four years. We do know that Donald Trump runs best when he's an underdog. He is not great when his hands are on the wheel, as we just saw. So... The idea that he could spend four years peppering what is happening in the White House is, it seems like something that he would be very, very, very much uh, happy doing. Now, at a certain point, you do also have to stop this particular election, which, considering we've heard more and more about the idea that Donald Trump will run again in 2024, I think tends to be closer to happening right now. I think as soon as we get vote verifications, we're going to get a Trump concession. Now, I also thought that uh, around the time that we got the AP calling the race, we were going to get a Trump concession. That didn't happen. So take my thought with a grain of salt on this one. But what we don't know is exactly how this is going to affect some of the other people that are running in this race, presumably in 2024. 
Marco Rubio came out last week and said that he was somebody that wanted to remake the Republican Party as a working class party. He's looking at those Miami-Dade numbers and saying, wow, if I didn't even have to campaign in Florida because of this shifting demographics and I was able to put more time and effort into working class voters in the, 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 the blue wall states or maybe even uh, Arizona and Nevada, those were two states that turned out to be closer than you thought and might benefit shifting uh, uh, demographics that he could see a little path for himself. And then there are those that literally came up in the Trump administration. Mike Pence being the biggest of them. Nikki Haley being somebody that went from never Trump to somebody that is, uh, uh, you know, a Trump acolyte. Mike Pompeo. A man who uh, has, has very much been an aggressive secretary of state to the point where he uh, uh, could very much be a Trump acolyte. I don't suspect that Donald Trump is going to out and out announce that he is going to run. Well, maybe I do. I, I guess, what do you think, dear listener, would be more likely... What would be more likely? And in fact, I want you to, to write in to me on this. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. What do you think would be more likely that Donald Trump announces he is running in 2024 and then says he's not going to do it and blesses somebody or that he hints that he is going to run and teases it out for four years doing rallies, blah, blah, blah. And then either says he does or blesses somebody. Here's what I know for sure. None of this is planned out. <laughs> I think that we've seen enough of the, the, the Trump organization to this point to know that everything is jazz with them. Nothing is symphonic. This is not chamber music. This is not playing the American standards. This is not the great American songbook. All of this is improv. All of this is yes and. Because even now, it's like if you wanted to ninja roll out of this election and, and go right into your opposition candidacy, the time to do it was probably a week ago. The idea that he's still out here saying that he won the election is... I don't think helpful for keeping the energy going. You know, it's just putting everybody into an awkward position where they got to say, uh, and I mean, everybody is in supporters. You know, like I said, this is the shedding of presidential power. First, it's the opportunists. They're gone. They're already down the road. Then it's the loyalist. You've seen that in the media. You've seen that with, Laura Ingram, you've seen that with Tucker Carlson hinting at the idea that this is over. You've seen it with Mike Pence staying as under the radar as he can. And now the Nikki Haley's and Mike Pompeo's who are like, well, let's wonder what's going to happen. This is the loyalists. Eventually, it'll be the fans. Now, I mentioned this on the PX3 Extra yesterday. When is the next Trump rally? Does he wait until he can pack a stadium or, or an arena? Does he do another president one while he's president? Is that his farewell address? Either way, if he's already thinking about 2024, I think he definitely does the inauguration. Because that'll be the closest thing to a stare down for a heavyweight fight four years in the making. Spoiler alert, if you were tired of Trump versus Biden, uh, uh, strap in for another four years. Ladies and gentlemen, it is because of your help, of your specific uh, uh, support to TakePoliticsSeriously.com that I am making sure that you guys don't miss any time. 
that you guys are 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 kept abreast of everything that I might think about politics, even though I'm on this vacation. And and and, and to be honest, it's like I wouldn't want it any other way. I I think I would die if if you guys did not have access to my political opinions. And and I I thank you for that. We are in a copacetic relationship where you guys are are listening and I keep talking. I will keep talking until my mouth falls off of my body because you guys deserve it. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to cover politics. If you want to make sure that you get our Monday bonus episode, that you get our Thursday bonus episode, well, guys, the only way that you can access that is by heading on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. Get on that $3 tier. Get that custom RSS feed that you can put into the podcast player of your choice and get those bonus episodes. You can also get it on the on, on, on the Patreon app as well. That's also an easy way. I know that I subscribe to other uh, podcasts on Patreon that have exclusive stuff, and sometimes I just pop it on the Patreon app. On, on, on the app. It's easy. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is uh, the, the man about politics for the Cheddar Network. He joined us last Friday, so there might be a little bit of a discrepancy in terms of uh, uh, some of the information here, but the one, the only, J.D. Durkin. Welcome to the show, buddy. I'm doing well, my man. Thank you for having me back as always. What a privilege to join you, especially on this Friday. Thanks, brother. Well, uh, uh, I, I do think that this is going to air on a Wednesday, but I do I do appreciate you being so excited <laughs> to talk to me uh, that you wanted to mark this moment in time. Uh, you have had a hell of a last few weeks. Not only are you uh, the 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 man about DC and now the East the Eastern Corridor for Cheddar politically, but also you are are I think you're up on the hill as we speak to you right now, right? I am in the Cannon House Office Building, one of the few uh, buildings uh, that the House of Representatives has right across the street from the U.S. Capitol. Yes. So hello from. Hello from the heart of the swamp. The seat of power. Uh, yeah. So let's start with the election and then we'll get into some of the ramifications because uh, I think that is more uh, of what you're probably focusing on right now on, on the Hill. But you were in the middle of the scrum. Some of the video that you got from the protests uh, and and celebrations and the protests and celebrations com- combined like a Pizza Hut and Taco Bell in Philadelphia was insane. Can you just describe that scene? Oh, where do I even start? So our week actually started off in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That That's the state capital. And, and that's really where we saw the large contingent after the election of the of really the big pro-Trump group, right? This effort of like stop the steal and, and Americans who were convinced that this election was stolen from the president. Uh, and then we went off into Philadelphia where, because it's the heart of, of a big city, it was much more of a celebratory pro Joe Biden uh, scene. Uh, but a lot of Trump voters showed up there as well to register their, their disappointment and uh, stayed there in Philly through the big call Saturday morning uh, for the Associated Press yep. and the other decision desks. And then we Darted right out to Wilmington, Delaware for now president-elect Joe Biden and vice president-elect Kamala Harris's speeches on Saturday and then back to Philly after that. So a bit of uh, a bit of traveling um, the area the last week for sure. Holy moly. You are not kidding. Uh, uh, that, that is that is uh, that is wild. I know that, you know, from your personal tweets, uh, the, the, the scene those days after the election did not exactly fill your heart with pride in our union. Is that safe to say? <laughs> That's very safe to say. Um, I've covered a lot of things over the course of the last few years. And, and sometimes I sit there and think, yeah, I feel really good about where our democratic Republic is headed. I feel good about this experiment in democracy. And then other times I say, my God, we are in the midst of a crisis of misinformation 
and it's only going to get worse. And that is where I find myself now, especially after being in places like Harrisburg and, and, and Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit more pessimistic. Uh, I think, with the tone and tenor of where we're headed these days. I mean, I guess part of it shouldn't have been a massive surprise, and yet it's always hard to see. We've lived in two different worlds for the last, I mean, four years for sure, and and you could probably trace it longer. Uh, As our bubbles have gotten thicker, we just don't even agree on the same basic facts. So I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that we lived in two worlds uh, uh, as this election happened. The one thing that's supposed to kind of unite us uh, was was I guess is is still trying to at least at, at the time that we're recording this on Friday the thirteenth. Uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing. And at the same time, here on Capitol Hill, you know, as we speak, we have new member orientation, um, and and so all, all these new members who are just elected to the House are here and. Um, they are getting their office assignments. They're hiring staff. They are figuring out the weedy legislative process. You know, it, it's basically the house version of what you'd see in like a, a new student orientation at like a college <laughs> campus or something. Um, but but already there's there, there's controversy, right? I mean, you get people like Congresswoman elect Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She's here. She's you know refusing to to wear a mask, and she's calling out her colleagues for mask wearing around the hill and. You know, these divisions are, are already prevalent. It's not, even, it's not even January 3rd yet. That's when the new Congress officially kicks off. And so those divisions you just mentioned are, are already apparent here in Washington just barely a week and a half after the election. All right, we will get to the Hill right after this, but I do have to ask you a question about that Wilmington-Delaware celebration on yeah. Saturday. Uh, how crazy was that drone thing? <laughs> Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it definitely was pretty wild when it spelled out. From our vantage point, I'm like kind of cocking my head to the side. I'm saying, "What does that say? What is it?" And um, I, yeah, it was. I was. I, 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 I know. I was. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I was wondering exactly how much of that was made for television and how much of that you guys could see from whatever that little mosh pit uh, of uh, in, in front of the stage. Yeah, exactly. Visibility is is a bit trickier on the ground versus what you see uh, when you're watching. TV from home. It's definitely made for the for the massive TV shots. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but it, it was an incredible scene, though. But you know, keep in mind, you know, in a, in a non pandemic world, you're doing this, and it's a sea of thousands and thousands sure. and thousands of people. Instead, it's like 400 cars and people kind of in and out of their cars and, and trying to distance. But um, I tell you, at a certain point, though, social distancing sort of went out the window as more people were trying to get there. The thing that's fascinating, there's just such a division. Biden supporters wear masks. Trump supporters do not. And this was something else that I had tweeted last week from my travels. I'd say more than 95% of of Democratic, you know, sort of enthusiasts that are out there uh, celebrating right now, they wear masks. And maybe 10% of Trump supporters wear masks. Um, And and just seeing those stark differences on the ground and in, in Philadelphia, especially, or in Harrisburg and Philadelphia, were were stunning, and it, it's a solid reminder that our politics are divided, even in this moment, even in terms of how serious you you take this pandemic. Where does YMCA rank amongst <laughs> fight song and uh, uh, high hopes? High hopes, yeah, high as hopes. as yeah, exactly. songs that you would like to put on a uh, floppy disk and eject into the sun. Yeah, and, and just incinerate forever. Forever. The thing with yeah. the, the YMCA is, a, as a big New York Yankees fan, that that's that we play that at every home Yankees game. That's been a staple my entire childhood. That, no, that, 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 that's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the ground crew, right? The ground crew comes out to YMCA and does the thing? They come out, absolutely. They, they kind of sweep the infield, they stop, they do the thing. And I always wonder if that's sort of Trump's connection to it, because Trump's such Maybe. a long-running Yankee yeah, fan from wow. decades ago. Oh, I think you just put something together. I was I wondering think, why think- <laughs> he was into the village people, but it makes sense if it's a Yankee thing. Dude, and, and the weirdest thing is, you know, when you go to these protests, at least in Philadelphia, Philadelphia police had separated the pro-Biden and the pro-Trump supporters, and both sides were playing village people, but for different (laughs) reasons. The the pro-Trump side is playing village people, macho man and YMCA, because they're like, well, this is what they play at the rallies. The pro-Biden side was playing it 
um, for a number of reasons, but chief among them, I think, to kind of throw some shade back at the Trump people. And so yeah. the Biden folks are going wild dancing to the YMCA and Macho Man. They can't get enough of the village people, just, I think, for fundamentally different reasons than the other side. Very strange. What what strange there. days we're living in, JD? That uh, uh, <laughs> that uh, the entirety of the streets of Philadelphia can all be playing YMCA and still hate each other. Yes, that's it. Very well said. Yeah. Um, very bizarre. Very uh, bizarre. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. So so let's let's swing now to some of the results. While there were certainly jubilance in Wilmington, Delaware, that's about where the unrestrained good news ends. For the Democratic Party, a very weird uh, uh, result where they wind up underperforming down ballot. Biden has any coattails, uh, which is odd because he also is the person who's gotten the most votes for any president ever in the history of our Mm -hmm. union. But now Nancy Pelosi has less of a a margin to work with in the House. Mm What is the mood on uh, uh, Capitol Hill now? Uh, it seems like there's a lot of anger amongst the Democratic caucus uh, on where to go from here. There's absolutely infighting. And talking with one Democratic leadership source a couple of days ago, this person was quick to sort of put any suggestion of infighting aside and say, look, families fight. That's what you do when you get together and you think the doors are closed. You're going to have it out with one another. It's based in love but you're trying to be a better, stronger family. Uh, Yesterday and today, I was here on Capitol Hill for Speaker Pelosi's press conferences. She comes out, she has a weekly. Yesterday, she was there with Chuck Schumer as well. And of course, she's going to be very quick to downplay the divisions. We all know the reports of someone like Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who went off on that caucus call last week, and she calls out things like defund the police and Medicare for all, saying this jeopardized the more moderate centrist members and, because and, those yeah, things and, and were just, really just hold on. Weaponized. Yeah, hold on, JD. Just a reset for folks who might not have caught up on this because it'll be a little bit from when it happened. There was one of the first calls with the Democratic mm-hmm. caucus after the election, and it turned into a a gigantic vent session because they are now going to have less members in their group, and it was very divided on are we a very progressive party for which is going to talk about defunding the police and court packing and all these things that are very popular with progressive uh, causes or are do we need to understand that there has to be room for the moderates or else we're going to lose these swing districts and that's what some of the anger in that particular congresswoman's uh, uh, voice I think came from yeah I that, very well said and that's absolutely the I think the appropriate groundwork to lay so you know, Speaker Pelosi at these press conferences, she's she's quick to kind of diminish that talk. Um, a few reporters say, you know, does this weaken your hand of negotiating? Does this concern you? And Speaker Pelosi continues to say Joe Biden has a mandate. She is going to this record number of voters who voted him in. And she's saying we won the presidency. And I think the sense from Democrats right now is, OK, we took more body blows than we thought we would. Right. If you think about this, just like in, in a boxing match. Right. Yeah. We took a lot more blows than we thought. But at the end of the day, we toppled the king. Not to refer to the presidency as a king, but yeah, yeah. you know, we 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 did the we 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 took down the, the biggest, baddest boss, right? They got they Trump got big chunks. No longer yeah. going to be president. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's uh, uh look then across the aisle real quick before we get into some of the issues that uh still is pressing in Congress, because there are quite a few of them. And that is uh, what's happening with, uh, like you said, some of the more insurgent members of the Republican Party. We're going to be hearing a lot about Marjorie Greene, right? Like this, this, she's mm-hmm. gonna, she's just going to be one of those people that everybody fixates on for the next two years. I think that's ab- absolutely a safe assumption. Um, and the thing that I have recognized since her primary that I don't think got discussed enough about is what a headache particular members cause for their party's leadership. So you really set yourself up if you're Republican leadership on Capitol Hill, if you're someone like Kevin McCarthy, you know, they come out, they hold press conferences very frequently. But now if you're Kevin McCarthy, you can almost guarantee that every single week you are going to be asked to comment on the the last troubling tweet from someone like Congresswoman Green uh, in, in Georgia. Do you disavow this? What are your views on that? And that creates such a PR headache 
for leadership in Congress because they want to focus on policy. They want to focus on literally anything except for those controversies. But if you do have members, and this goes for both parties, that have a little bit of outsized media attention and they're inclined to stir the pot, that becomes a little bit of a problem. And already we're seeing someone like Congresswoman-elect Green butt heads with other voices in her party. They're sparring on Twitter. She's going at it with Congressman Adam Kingsinger, a uh, a Republican from Illinois. She's going at it with Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas on Twitter. Who is who is now 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 that we've swept the leadership, uh, you would think is now in line for bigger and better things, considering his stature. I mean, it it, it takes a lot to be famous in Congress. If you if you're famous in Congress, you're probably either going to be there forever or you're going to do something else. He's absolutely a rising star in the GOP. There's no sense, especially given the fact that they really did perform so well uh, in the state of Texas. I think that's largely what Republicans are are, are holding on to right now. So, um, yeah, I, I think someone like Congressman Crenshaw is certainly going to have uh, an outsized role. I think he had a very prominent first term in office, but that, that underscores those divisions. So Republicans are going to have this division. They've got two members of Congress who have either expressed support for something QAnon related or some kind of policy, have dabbled in it into one degree or another. That's a big problem for the GOP. And then, of course, like you said, House Democrats are coming in, still sort of holding this postmortem. How did we get these races wrong? How did we underperform so dramatically? Because the pollsters, for whatever it's worth, said Democrats were going to be adding 8, 10, 12, maybe even 15 seats But largely, I think for a few reasons, but chief among them, Donald Trump was on the ballot again here in 2020. Um, That is not the reality that Democrats are going to have. And it may not even be an easy battle for Speaker Pelosi to even hold on to the speakership. I'm sure she's going to face some tough challenge come January. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my next question. Uh, uh, Certainly Nancy Pelosi, a divisive figure. She is out there on the George W. Bush battleship with her mission accomplished banner behind her. And, (laughs) and yet uh, it, 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 it doesn't look like a win, at least from her vantage point of what she could control Is she going to face a major challenge? And if so, who? Well, I think you, you know, a few years ago, you go back to people like Congressman Tim Ryan, Ohio, launched a challenge. I haven't gotten a good sense quite yet on who from the caucus would look to step up. But, you know, maybe some of these moderate centrist members who are who are frustrated, not that I necessarily think Congresswoman Spanberger would, would throw her hat into the ring, but especially with new members coming into a Congress, they are looking for something fresh. They are looking for something new. But at the same time, I think at the end of the day, the vast majority of these members are going to understand, especially if Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell holds on to control on the other side of Congress, that you want a steady, experienced hand at the gavel. And from, from what I've told, been able to poke around, the sense is still, this will still be Speaker Pelosi's speakership. It just may be... Uh, a, a bit more difficult. And, and I also yeah. wonder if any of these so-called more progressive members um, look to challenge her. Uh, but my sense is I, I don't think that any candidate in that making mold, again, I'm speaking in generalities yeah. here, but I don't think those candidates would necessarily have the, the necessary support within the caucus. I think they realize for good or for bad, playing a bit more to the center left uh, is still probably the best calculus right now for the Democratic Party. That, that's my sense from most people on the Hill. Can you just, as a primer, lay out for everybody exactly what the politics of even challenging for the speakership look like? Because I would guess that it is it's something that you don't want to say you're going to do unless you're really, really, really sure that, you know, you can have some level of success with it. Or, uh, you know, if you just do it half cocked and Pelosi rolls over you, then that means you're never going to get any more funding forever. Right. Like like this. This seems like a very game within a game, uh, hyper political uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. And this all comes down to the math. It all comes down to the numbers. It's really the first thing that the House does um, once they're here in early January. They're going to take up that vote. And I will tell you that Republicans weaponized the Pelosi challengers against Pelosi the entire last term. So yeah. even if she did have someone like Congressman Ryan or a few others who said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to challenge just to offer a different alternative. And they lost overwhelmingly. 
that is that still becomes a point of attack from the Kevin McCarthy's, the Steve Scalise's, the Liz Cheney's, the influential Republicans in the House. They're going to hold that over Pelosi's head for the entire term. And I certainly expect that to be the case now. And the Republicans are emboldened. And I think rightfully so. They exceeded expectations. They're going to end up adding a few seats they were not supposed to add. Um, and so, yes, I, th I think that all kind of comes down to the math. And you also have other members who, you know, may not vote for Pelosi or for someone else, but they'll vote present. You know, these, these yeah. like infuriating present votes, which basically say I'm not going to I'll vote, but I'm not really voting for anyone. I'm not going to go on the record about who I support or oppose. And all these things make it a bit more difficult for, I, I think, for Speaker Pelosi or Democratic leadership to you know, to, to navigate the different voices within their party. It's going to be a tough time. I, I think more than likely you're dealing with a Pelosi, Biden, McConnell triangle. That's now going to be the new calculus in Washington. And House Democrats want to be as, as united a front as possible uh, to deal with. I, I, the best sense really is um, I think that Republicans will hold on to Georgia, one or both of these seats. Yeah. And that's going to make things a lot more difficult for House Democrats already knowing, hey, man, Chatter's already started for 2022 and an incumbent president in in his first midterm usually gets, as Obama famously said, shellacked. Yep. And so I think Democrats already sense, wow, we did not do as well in 20. Uh, what year is this? 2020. Yep. Yes, that's 2020 it. as we thought. Um, and so the, it, that could make things that much more challenging two years away, which, you know, the two years in Washington time is next to nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that I mean, and and. I think that they should. They, I mean, this was really their best shot to flip the Senate because they had a lot. I mean, the the Republicans had a, a lot of coverage area that uh, you know they really could have taken advantage of and didn't. Let's let's turn our eyes to the Senate. You already uh, answered one of my questions that there's there's no real optimism coming from D.C. at least about these Georgia races, right? No, despite, I think, President-elect Joe Biden showing in Georgia, um, you know, the calculus is always different. I think I think the, the you know, some people think, well, Biden did well in Georgia. So statewide voters for a Senate seat or the governor's mansion or whatever will follow suit. But that's not necessarily the case. And I think, um, you know, Democrats are going to put forward their best effort. Stacey Abrams has done. I think everyone in Washington says, wow, what an effort that Abrams has done with regards to on the ground, get out the vote efforts. Um, you know, we're going to have Andrew Yang's moving down to Georgia to, to help with this issue. Yeah. And, you know, the sense is, I think, uh, and, and they're going to have a ton of outside money. And the money is, is just huge in these races, gobs and gobs of dollars to try and flip these seats. But the best sense I've gotten is that this is still senators Leffler and, and produce seats to lose. Uh, which, again, is still only going to strengthen Leader McConnell's hand. And I think that presents several challenges for Joe Biden. Yes, agenda. Yes, you know, uh, you know, any conversation of the filibuster or court packing becomes more difficult. But also, if Republicans control the Senate, yeah. you're talking about, I think, nonstop investigations. Hunter Biden, the laptop, Burisma. We have not turned the page on those because as soon as we kick off the session in January, I personally foresee those investigations will be huge. They will try and dominate conservative media, and they're going to make life really hard for President Joe Biden. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about the Senate in, in uh, the context of Biden's cabinet. Certainly many of the prominent big name Democrats currently reside in the Senate. One of them is now the vice president. Have, have you heard any any gossip on who might be the junior senator from California in uh, in, in a few months time? I, I, I have not. And I, I don't even want to necessarily put out names. It's just it's purely speculation at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of one of those interesting things that, uh, you know, so, so, so if, so if, on. so if I say London breed, am I close? <laughs> you don't <laughs> hey, have to say go. it. I, if I, I say London that, breed, right. You're, you're like JD blink one, yeah. blink once. If yes, <laughs> blink twice. If no, um, could absolutely be. And I think that's part of one of the interesting things, not just for, for California, though. I know that's where you are, but you know, more broadly, you have conversations of, okay, what do you do with a Senator Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, that was my next question. Right now with a, with a different governor, do you jeopardize your other seats? So 
all, all these things uh, are unfortunately, I, I think, working against Democrats' interests in, in some states. Yeah, I, I think that no matter who they put in in, in, in Kamala's seat, that's that's going to be fine. Uh, 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 a Republican's not going to get elected a senator in, in California, even if there's a special election. But the other seats are are interesting. And, and uh, uh, you know, some of what we have heard is, well— Sure, I, I know Elizabeth Warren wants to be in the cabinet. I know Bernie Sanders wants to be in the cabinet. Progressives might feel like they are owed one of those two in the cabinet, but uh, the idea of replacing them might be a bridge too far in a very, very, very slim Republican majority. Is, is that what the sense you're getting? Yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, th th this all becomes, and we really saw this leading up to the election, it's all about maintaining the power that you have. And you don't want to be in, in, put yourself into a position where you cede any ground. I think part of President-elect Biden's advantage is that, that he is such an institutionalist. He is such a veteran senator. He's got relationships you know, from people over decades here in Washington that for some of these positions, whereas I know some of the splashier headlines will say, oh, a Senator Sanders, a Senator Warren – you know, he's likely to go to, you know, you know, someone like Roger Ferguson is the name I keep hearing, for instance, for Treasury Secretary. That's a yeah. former vice chairman of the Fed Board of Governors, not a household name, but someone who's pretty well known in like the wonky world of the Beltway from years ago. And that's the sort of thing that I think is going to be seen as a safer pick for a President Biden to go to, understanding that's in terms of consensus building with Republicans going to be some some safer choices. So don't be surprised if I think the cabinet announcements kind of come out or these nominations. And a lot of people are saying, you know, who who is that? Who's who's that person? Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm somewhat unfamiliar. And you look at the person's credentials and say, wow, that person is a, a career Washington, D.C. official um, in, in one department or another. I think we'll have a lot of that. Let's uh, switch to the pressing stuff. Uh, well, we, we, we got past one of the big hurdles, the election itself. We now have our results. J.D., how much closer are we to a COVID deal? Oh, goodness. I, we're probably <laughs> further away than we were three weeks ago, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't get that. It's interesting, too, because before the election, Speaker Pelosi and Democrats were willing to lower their negotiating point. They went all the way down to $2.2 trillion, which I know is still a lot of money, but yes. from where they started from, that's coming down. And yesterday and today, Speaker Pelosi told us, you know, she keeps citing the HEROES Act, which is much closer to $3 trillion. So 3.4 at my count. Yeah, so so they came right, down right. from 3.4 to 2.2. And I guess Cocaine Mitch has said, no, 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 we like our <laughs> $500 billion. Like so, so now we are we are negotiating between anywhere between five hundred billion and three point four, and we don't know who the president is or the president elect is not getting any kind of briefings. Uh, right. So the presidential daily briefings is its whole own thing, and yeah. national security concerns are what they are during an already fractured transition period. Um, so in terms of a COVID deal, you know, Speaker Pelosi has been asked a lot here these last few days. She's she's reverting back to that high price tag figure. I don't think there's any chance anything gets done here in this lame duck. Your best bet is to kind of turn the page to end of January, early February and say, well, do Democrats finally concede and come down to something a bit more manageable, so to speak, in terms of focus? Or you, you'll hear the phrase like skinny, like a skinny focus, yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah. is just basically less money. Um, or do Republicans go big? And I don't think there's any chance that Republicans, especially feeling as emboldened as they did after the election, they're not going to go big. So at some point, the, the brinkmanship that has defined Washington, especially down the stretch for this election, is, I think, going to continue in, into the year. But, you know, the truth is you know, people need relief. American families are struggling. People are still out of work. Small businesses want that support. Um, bigger businesses want liability protection to, to know that they won't be on the receiving end of crushing litigation if they send their employees back to work and their employees come down with the with the coronavirus. So um, I think that pressure will still be there. But I'll tell you something, a lot of members of Congress, especially Republicans, they watch that stock market. And right yeah. now, the market, for the most part, has been pretty bullish because they recognize that a, a fractured Congress, um, you know, and split control uh, means you're not going to change financial policy. So the market could very well continue to do quite well, which is going to lessen the urgency on trying to get a COVID deal.
So for everybody else, it's it's partisan wins for Christmas. Don't worry. There will be partisan purity and partisan <laughs> wins, and you can wrap them up and put them under the tree this Christmas. Put uh, a bow on it, and yeah. uh, absolutely. There you, there you go. Happy holidays, everyone. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, what a what a great what a what a what a what an amazing time! Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, uh, uh, one last thing here for you, uh, JD. I'm going to ask you this every time you're on until we get an announcement because for whatever reason, I I I I think you either know or you will be among the first people I know to know. A lot mm-hmm. of strident comments from AOC over the past week. I'm convinced she's going to primary Schumer. Am I crazy? Oh, man, I know this. This does come up every time you and I talk. Um, I, I don't. I don't think you're crazy. Um, I definitely think there's there's a reason it is being talked about as much. Um, you know, there's been some speculation that maybe you know Biden gives a role to someone like a Gillibrand that sort of opens up the seats. You know what I mean? There's some sort of 3D chess ah, conversations happening where, you know, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand gets a cabinet job. Cuomo is able to kind of bump up Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. This is speculation, but sure. this is what the happy hour crowd in Washington likes to talk about, um, which would really put Chuck Schumer in a far better position. Um, but the other sense I've had from talking with New York state Democrats is to say there's not much appetite throughout the state for the lane of the justice Democrat level policies. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes from misunderstanding of how the justice Democrats, the progressive lane of Democrats understand the role of the federal government. And, you know, they, they are very quickly demonized. Um, but for whatever it's worth, that that Senator Gillibrand part of the conversation is, is going to be talked about more and more. Ah, I love it. I love it. That would be that would be the way to to to, to diffuse the situation. It's just yes, to open up, open up the junior uh, Senate seat from uh, uh, for for AOC. All right. Well, JD Durkin, of course, uh, your work at Cheddar uh, has been over the past few weeks can't miss. If you are not uh, uh, following him on Twitter at Jive Durkey, then you need to because. Uh, uh, You've just uh, above and beyond 10 out of 10, JD. You should be really, really proud. And I know that you're going to keep cranking uh, uh, for the rest of the year. So thank you so much for coming on. That's very kind of you to say. And if I could say before we go, it it seems like I think you and I were in Iowa together on what feels like 100 years ago at this point. And we were also in Nashville, Tennessee together. And what also feels like a hundred years ago, that was just last October. That, yeah, that was 150 a years a few, ago. A few of our friends, Andrew Heaton, yep. who's a buddy of yours, yep. old buddy of mine, we were hanging. And of course, my good buddy, Andrew Saddleberger, I want to give a shout out to because he listens to every single one of your episodes. <laughs> and uh, he, he's also been a longtime supporter of both yours and mine. I know those guys are listening, so I got to give him a shout out because – um, you know what this business is like, man. You travel around, you meet really good people, you keep good people in your orbit who are engaged – and uh, I got to give a shout out to those guys. And I got to thank you for your work as well, man. Your support's been absolutely awesome. And thank you for having me back on the show. I'm, I'm happy to join you anytime for the latest wonkiness Indeed. out of Capitol Hill. You'll be back on soon. J.D. Durkin, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Thank you to J.D. Durkin for coming on. Thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you to our titanic $10 tier, for whom I will name out loud right now. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beef, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Crookie McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, D-Laser, Matt, who called from labor and delivery, Starfleet for Biden, Jason with Magnolia, Delta Credit Card Processing. Catherine, nobody expects the Dismal Science Podcast. Katie, vote for Joe Biden 2020. Rob, uh, vote for Glory Young 2020. Thanks for voting Trump 2020. Martin Esco, uh, Moen, government unfiltered. Oh, let me get this here. Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Deck News Show, Adam, David, Jacob, DL, Steven. Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Dustin, Jacob, Ed, the Goose, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, the Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen, Summers, J Pink, 
Andrew, Matthew, and James. You want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder that this show was edited by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Oakland, California. You can always write into us, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Get on our Discord, bit.ly slash jury discord. That is J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. You can follow us on Twitter at PX3Tweets. Letter P, letter X, number three, tweets. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Hey, they're out here talking about politics, but this is the only program that dares talk about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. And look, the speakers where I'm where I'm talking, the speakers have come online. I think I think the bar is open. Sweet.